BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. At Amica Insurance, we know it's more than just a house. It's your home, the place that's filled with memories. The early days of figuring it out to the later years of still figuring it out. For the place you've put down roots, trust Amica Home Insurance. Amica, empathy is our best policy. It's Friday, March 14th, and you're listening to Inquiring Minds. I'm Chris Mooney. And I'm Indre Viscontis. Each week, we bring you a new in-depth exploration of the space where science, politics, and society collide. We endeavor to find out what's true, what's left to discover, and why it all matters. You can find us online at climatedesk.org, and you can follow us on Twitter at Inquiring Show and on Facebook at slash Inquiring Minds Podcast. Today's show is sponsored by Credo Mobile, the phone company that stands up for progressive values. The people at Credo know global warming is a fact, and Credo activists are fighting hard to stop the Keystone XL pipeline, which could mean game over for the climate. You can learn more about Credo at www.credomobile.com, or for a special offer of $50 off any phone for Inquiring Minds listeners, go to credomobile.com forward slash Inquiring Minds. So something... Truly historic happened this week with respect to the public communication and popularization of science. And that is that 34 years after the original Cosmos series aired on PBS, Fox and National Geographic released a new super deluxe updated version of the program that in the hands of Carl Sagan, its original host, reached hundreds of millions of people. And this new version is com- has come out in what is actually the biggest release of a TV series in history, it's going to reach half a billion homes, 220 channels, 181 countries, 45 languages, and the show itself is quite stunning. It's hosted by the heir apparent to Carl Sagan, Dr. Neil deGrasse Tyson, whose facility, when it comes to explaining all things scientific, has been, I think it's fair to say, widely noted pretty much everywhere on the internet. And we were super lucky because this week we actually got to have Dr. Tyson on the show to talk about the new cosmos and to discuss anything from what it's like to follow in Sagan's footsteps to why this is the right moment for bringing cosmos back to, you know, the problem of the politicization of science. Here's one clip from our interview. Now you speak about the politicization of science. And I, yes, that happens. People somehow feel they can cherry pick emergent scientific truths to resonate with their philosophies and reject those that don't. My issue here is I'm not going to debate those people or argue with them in a venue. I'm going to instead offer the public this product called Cosmos that alerts you how science works and what it means to express a scientific truth. I claim that all those who think they can cherry-pick science simply don't understand how science works. 
Just like so many other science geeks out there, I'm super excited about this version of Cosmos. And of course, with Neil deGrasse Tyson being the host, it's just awesome. But I have to say, I am completely shocked at how far reaching it is and just how much it's trending on Twitter, how excited people are. It feels like it's just in my world. But given what you've just said about how it's, you know, the biggest release of a television show in history, this seems like a completely new precedent. Right. I think we're suffering from a sort of curse of low expectations. We're so not used to this kind of thing uh, that those numbers blew me away because I'm used to science getting short shrift in the media. I'm used to the terrible statistics about how little, you know, attention gets paid to science on cable news and about the stats about how science sections have been cut from newspapers. And suddenly this thing comes out and it's everywhere. And I'm like, whoa, I'm not even I don't even know how to process it, you know. Yeah. And even just a few years ago, I spent a lot of time pitching science related shows to, you know, Discovery Channel and various other networks just after I um, made my debut on TV at, as a miracle detective on the Oprah Winfrey Network. And there was, you, it was such a hard sell. You really had to convince people that the average TV viewer cared about science. And like clearly they were mistaken because here's this massive rollout. Well, the time might have come around for those shows again, you know. Yeah, but believe me, I am I am brushing <laughs> off those pitches. <laughs> well, no, so we're we're thrilled about about Cosmos, and we're going to hear uh, a lot of great insight from Dr. Tyson in a minute. That's our interview for this week. But first, let's talk about uh, some other things in the news that we've noted this week. So, first, uh, Indre, what is up with the science of de extinction? Yeah, this is another one of those phenomena that all of a sudden seems to be in every single media outlet. Um, you know, Carl Zimmer has a great cover piece uh, in, on, in the National Geographic magazine. And, you know, there's been some writing about it in the New York Times. And of course, it's this idea that we can now bring back extinct species, you know, the, the Jurassic Park of the current day. And it's exciting from, you know, f- simply because it's cool, right? I mean, we all watched Jurassic Park and we thought, well, what a great idea. Is this ever going to happen? And it turns out now the science is actually around to make it happen. And so all of a sudden, it's no longer just a, wow, wouldn't it be cool if? And now it's a question of, okay, hang on a minute. Is this an ethical thing to do? Is this something we should be doing? So I have to say, uh, if you know me well, you know I definitely have my issues with libertarians (laughs) because so many of them are climate deniers. But there's a part of me that finds really enticing this part of the libertarian techno-optimist vision of remaking the natural world to make it better than it was before. And that sometimes means, you know, full steam ahead, we need to colonize Mars. And sometimes it means, hey, we can bring back the passenger pigeon and the Tasmanian tiger, and wouldn't that be awesome to do it? And, you know, I find that optimism kind of intoxicating. And for the people who are scared by this, I think that we have to just sort of like make a footnote and reference our show uh, on GMOs with Steve Novella, where we basically took apart the argument that, you know, some things aren't natural and shouldn't be done. Because with these species, uh, their extinctions were caused by humans in many, many cases. So, uh, you know, if it's unnatural to bring them back, it was unnatural to make them go extinct. So, you know, you get into all these contradictions. And I think that the thing that is a valid concern is, is an ecosystem going to be upset? Can it not handle the proliferation of some new organism, which I can see, but as long as you have that dealt with, then I, I like it. 
Yeah, and I think we can never really predict exactly what bringing back a species, what effect that will have on a given ecosystem. But, you know, so often think species, invasive species get introduced into ecosystems and then we have to deal with the consequences. So in some ways, just by understanding that this is potentially an issue, we're already way further along than we are just when, you know, rats colonize an island because they came on a ship. And in some ways, I see this as the as the animal equivalent of GM food, right? Just as you mentioned, you know, we've been creating breeds of food for thousands of years. And now all of a sudden, everyone's up in arms about this idea of genetically modified organisms. Well, here we have, you know, again, a species that we could create just from genes that we find in, you know, the fossil record or what have you. Um, but we've been we've been selectively breeding domestic animals also for hundreds, if not thousands of years. I think that bringing back mammoths, though, mammoths would be a kind of a big deal. You'd have to definitely have that situation under control. Yeah, well, and they do have a long gestational period and a long maturation period. So it's not like it would happen in an afternoon. Got it. Well, yeah, so I, I'm, I'm interested to see this play out. And I, you know, I think the question is, who, who does it first? And what species do they do it with? And is there any regulatory apparatus what happens then and i'm not i'm not clear on all those things but i i don't it's one of those things you can't put back in the bag either it's just cool to talk about and think about well you know something i noted uh this week so we always hear these concerns about climate change it's gonna it's gonna really upend the world for instance it might you know change the borders of nations as sea level rise swallows up coastlines and forces a lot of people to migrate to other places and higher ground, maybe, you know, a country that they didn't use to live in, but they've lost a lot of ground in their home country. So something like this has been conjured, for instance, with Bangladesh and sea level rise. And so there are ideas that this could spark a lot of conflict around the world, conflicts that turn on resources. And there's a case that's actually been made that the conflict in Syria might have been exacerbated by drought conditions that in turn might be tied to climate change or the kind of thing that you would expect under climate change. We don't hear as much, though, about how past changes in the climate, even before we were causing them by burning fossil fuels and changing the atmosphere, might have also had these kind of grand historically scaled effects. But get this, there's a new paper, it is just out in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences, and in here, scientists use tree rings going back, a record of tree rings going back over a thousand years to reconstruct the climate of central Mongolia. Why Mongolia? Well, it turns out that some interesting things happened there that we all kind of know about. What they find is that the 15-year period when the climate was the wettest and the warmest was the period when Genghis Khan rose to power and made his many conquests. And this is roughly the years uh, 1211 to 1225 CE. And the paper says, here's a quote, We propose that these climate conditions promoted high grassland productivity and favored the formation of Mongol political and military powers. In other words, there was more growth of grasslands that that supported more horses and more livestock. And that was the basis on which uh, Genghis Khan was able to exert so much military force. So this is a story of just how much impact a change in climate can have. It can rewrite the course of history. This I love this story in part, too, because of a, a personal side. And that is, you know, my parents are both born in Lithuania. And there are sort of two types of Lithuanians. There is the, the very fair-skinned, blonde, blue-eyed Lithuanians that you think of typically of Scandinavian countries. And then there are people like me who have darker skin, dark eyes, dark hair, and even like a slightly almond shape uh, to our eyes. And the theory is, is that we are actually the descendants of Genghis Khan during the conquests. <laughs> 
Wow. Well, no, the, I mean, there's a lot of uh, genes that are ultimately influenced by this conquest, as I understand it. So <laughs> absolutely, but there's but but there's a serious side to it too, which of course is that climate deniers are going to point to this and say, "Hey, you know, the climate's been changing." sporadically for hundreds, if not thousands of years, why is this century any different? Well, and it's it's a fair point until you consider that no one's no one's claiming. Uh, no one's ever been claiming as far as I know that there weren't climatic changes. There were ice ages, right? <laughs> you know, before humans were burning all the fossil fuels that are submerged under the ground. Uh, so no, this just gives us uh, a window on how consequential those changes could actually have been and how much they could have shaped history before. And that lets us project forward and say, you know what, it's going to be a big deal again. And this is not the only example. You know, there's, I don't think the science is as well established on this. This is my understanding based on a brief reading. But there is research suggesting that the cold, the very cold climatic conditions were involved in what we, what we call the, we don't know exactly what happened, what we call the extinction of the Neanderthals in Central Europe. And the, uh, the theory is they had to travel a lot farther for food. And what did that happen? That brought them into more contact with our ancestors. And then what happened? We don't exactly know. There was both interbreeding. There was also probably conflict. Anyway, you know, they are not with us anymore. And there's an idea that climate change might have fed into that as well. Not human caused climate change, but climate change. Yeah, I mean, the interesting thing now that we have in our in our toolbox, of course, is models from scientists that might be able to predict more accurately what's going to happen with the climate in the coming years so that perhaps we can prepare for it um, and not see it as, as, you know, such a such a massive disruption on the human species. Yeah, but the, but droughts in particular, I mean, it's it's very easy to see how periods of sustained droughts can lead to resource conflicts or the opposite in the case of the Mongols. But, you know, th that that seems to me like a pretty pretty simple equation. Yeah, I guess we all have to go back and read Jared Diamond's Guns, Germs, and yeah, Steel again. Yeah, all the examples are in there. And Collapse. And Collapse. We've got to read that <laughs> Absolutely. one Absolutely. Okay, so with that, let's take a short break, and then we'll be back with my interview with Neil Tyson. Today's show is sponsored by Credo Mobile, the phone company that stands up for progressive values. Credo supports groups like the Union of Concerned Scientists, 350.org, and the National Center for Science Education. You can learn more about Credo at www.credomobile.com. Or for a free Google Nexus 5 offer, go to credomobile.com forward slash inquiring minds. Neil Tyson, welcome to Inquiring Minds. Thank you. I'm happy to be counted among those who you consider to be inquiring. <laughs> Definitely, you are. I mean, the epitome of inquiring is being at the center of uh, the biggest science television event in a very long time, a remake of the classic Cosmos. So how does it feel to stand on that Monterey cliff where Sagan stood and even echo some of his words? Yeah, it's well, that, those Monterey Cliffs, uh, you remember those, uh, they're stunning. And for, particularly for me as a city kid, <laughs> to be sort of just dropped into into this, this boundary between land and sea and air and cliffs. And, and so yeah, it's just stunning. So you got to say something deep if you're standing there. <laughs> and nature's expecting you to not just say, well, just watch the show, you know. <laughs> uh, but uh, yeah, it's, oh, by the way, we, I can quantify the, de the extent of this release. It turns out that this is the biggest release of a television series of any kind in the history of television. Wow. So uh, I just learned that from the folks at Fox and National Geographic. And part of what contributes to that is 
that it, over the next several days, basically within the first week of it having premiered on Fox in America, it will have appeared in 181 television stations around the world in 45 languages. And so somebody is thinking, someone who's in charge, you know, we're talking about network executives are saying to themselves that this is important and it needs the widest possible audience. And so I, I, I would have always felt that <laughs> just as a scientist and as an educator, but to have people who are the gatekeepers of media such as this feel the same way tells me that maybe science is becoming mainstream in ways that I think it should have been happening long ago. So, and, and the fact that, you know, now you are before all of these people, you know, Carl Sagan has had biographies written of him. Uh, and now I think, you know, we need to start to do a little bit of the same for you. So I, I want to just ask, you know, how do you build uh, Neil Tyson? And uh, I'm inspired by just a scene from um, the autobiography you wrote, where you're a kid uh, on the rooftop of a 19-story building you lived in with a telescope at night, and you're looking at stars, but neighbors are calling the cops thinking you're a burglar. <laughs> And you have to yeah. tell the cops, uh, no, look, I'm looking at Jupiter. Here it is. Proof. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, I guess occasionally people would wonder, well, who would play you in a movie, right? And uh, yeah, I was a kid back then. So they had to get someone, you know, <laughs> to, to, to confront the cops and, and, and who were called. I, um, yeah, I, I have a story, but I think everyone has a story. So uh, the fact that I'm using a telescope as a child, every essentially every one of my colleagues had a telescope as a kid. So part of what I would tell people is m my story is maybe you're interested in it only because I'm now hosting a, a widely viewed series. But I would claim that most of us have very interesting stories to tell ourselves. And but the part of the message of Cosmos is that while I may be your host and your guide, at the end of the day, you take ownership of this knowledge and wisdom and insight. And you would not then have to reference me when you bring it to heart, um, when you take it to heart and glean a cosmic perspective that I and the rest of my astrophysics colleagues uh, hold. So uh, that, that's how I view it. Well, why do you feel you started to say that, you know, this is the moment where, you know, this really can reach massive audiences? Why is this generation ready now? I mean, do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, I think that's a great question because I suppose Cosmos could have been made 10 years ago, this, this follow on to the original Cosmos. The question is whether Fox would have taken an interest in it or any major network. And I think there was a, there was a lot of groundswell that fertilized the ground, fertilized, you know, the terrain on which Cosmos landed. And one of them was, uh, you just look around, for example, there's the website IFLS. Are you familiar with that Oh, one? yes. <laughs> it's, a, it's a website and, and Facebook place. And, you know, I effing love science. And it's got 10 million followers. Yeah, it's huge. 10. And, and, and what it does is it aggregates cool scientific videos and write-ups and YouTube clips and all of this sort of thing. And people just celebrate science on those pages. The people who follow those pages are, yeah, some of them, maybe many are geeks. Sure. But you don't get rack up those numbers unless you are penetrating into the rest 
of civilization, the rest of our culture, people who might not have known that they liked science and then saw how fun it could be and how enlightening the, the results, the fruits of science can, can be in their daily thought. So there's not only that. The number one sitcom on television is called The Big Bang Theory. Yes, they're caricatures, but if you ever had a friend who's a geek, you will see some of your friend in those characters. There's no doubt about it. And so how do you get a show where people spout, spout scientific commentary daily without any real effort to explain it to the viewer and have that be a number one show? How's that even possible unless the culture of science is working its way into pop culture? Then you have the multiple incarnations of crime scene investigation, CSI. I think it's in four different cities now. Uh, there's the CSI Vegas, Miami, New York, and I think I left one out. Uh, these are, these are good looking people portraying scientists who have real social I issues and joys and, and think of the stereotype of the scientist from the, 1950s or 60s. It's the wire-haired, lab-coat-donning person behind the test tube. And you don't care if they love or hate. You don't care if they have children. You don't care where they live. You don't care what their thoughts are other than to get the results to stop the disaster. And so these other shows, when you portray them as people who are good-looking and who you might want to be one day, then this is, I count this as a mainstreaming force. And then I wake up every morning saying, how did I get 1.7 million Twitter followers? Should I remind them that I'm an astrophysicist? By critiquing gravity, that. that's how. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe I should tell them, folks, I'm an astrophysicist, all right? You, you know, escape now. But the numbers keep growing and growing strongly. And people apparently like knowing what I think or how I look at the world through my lens as an astrophysicist and as an educator. So all of these forces operating told me that now is the right time. And the fact that it landed on Fox and that it's distributed around the world via National Geographic and domestically, and, and you look at the rollout for it, uh, I, I think there, there would have been no better time. You know, the original Cosmos did have a huge distribution, but that distribution was sort of hard-earned, right? It, it, people had to catch on to it and say, this is awesome. Uh, maybe we should bring it to other countries. Maybe we should reissue it. Maybe we, And so it did receive a huge distribution, but not out of the box the way this one did. So uh, I, I asked people on Facebook to, for some questions. This is one from James Underdown, directs the Center for Inquiry on the West Coast. And he, he asked this, and that was something I was thinking too. What's the number one thing, maybe if there's only one thing, that Sagan didn't know, just couldn't have known about the cosmos that we do that really gives us a new and different understanding? Now, I, I grant there may be many things, but what's a big one? I, I, I would, at, the, at the top of the list, he, um, he knew nothing of the discovery of dark energy that was published two years later. Are there equations of Einstein that told you something like dark energy could exist? But those terms in the equations were not really taken seriously and, and they were mostly ignored because it referred to an anti-gravity force. And, what, you know, this, the math doesn't have to map reality, by the way. It just, it's a, math is a tool to help us 
describe reality, but it doesn't have to be everything that math tells us it should be. So that was one of the things we said, okay, the equation gives you anti-gravity, let's just ignore it, because clearly there isn't any. So two years after Sagan's death, we discover dark energy. This is this pressure in the vacuum of space that pushes on the universe, forcing it to accelerate in its expansion. He, he couldn't have foreseen that. Uh, he couldn't have foreseen Kepler, the Kepler telescope, designed to find Earth-like planets around sun-like stars. And he would have known that these planets were out there, but not to be discovered with such uh, fanfare as the announcement from the Kepler telescope, 715 exoplanets released just a couple of weeks ago uh, in the press. Now the number is well over a thousand. He couldn't have known about our discussions of the multiverse, that our universe is one of many. And I, for me, those are the top of the list for me in the last 20 years since he's died. Well, especially the exoplanets. I mean, as someone who is so interested in the search for life elsewhere, I mean, I think that would have been the biggest thing probably to catch his fancy. Does that seem fair? Well, also, sure. Not only that, when you consider that we think of planets as the, as the, as the place where you might look for life because we are on a planet and we are life. However... It may be that life thrives on the moons of planets. There are several moons in the solar system that have fascinating terrain and atmospheric conditions that fall outside of the Goldilocks zone, even, this, war this, this tepid zone where water neither freezes nor evaporates. We would expect, that if there was life as we know it at all, that's where it would be. You can now find heat sources that are not the sun that keep these outer planets or outer moons warm, Europa is such an example, a frozen body where the stress from Jupiter's gravity pumps energy into it, melts the ice, and it's an ocean of liquid water. It's been liquid for billions of years. So something that has happened since 1996 is we've become much more open to places outside of the previous constraining boxes that we've uh, described them. So, uh, you know, I was there when you spoke uh, at the Library of Congress earlier this year, where people were sort of celebrating uh, the dedication of Carl Sagan's papers. It was kind of a preview uh, to the new cosmos in many ways. Uh, and But people did remark upon some trends there that you might argue could make your job a little harder in terms of uh, being able to reach people in the way that Sagan did. One of them is the media. And this is something that David Morrison, one of Sagan's students, remarked upon. The media have become so fragmented. Some of the stats you gave us suggest that you might be able to get past that with the release. But then also, science has gotten way, way politicized. I mean, how do you feel that Cosmos 2 fits into these trends? So, uh, so an important point here is the media attention given to this release of Cosmos has been extraordinary. It's, I, I would say, perhaps even without precedent. And that tells us something. By the way, it, it wasn't just in the television writer column where they have to write about it anyway. I'm talking about attention given to the release of the series in outlets that normally wouldn't be writing about television. They write about culture. They write about politics. They write about all these other things. They're writing about Cosmos. And so some of what David Morrison may have described uh, I think in the face of what has just happened may, no, may not be the problem that he thought it was. Now you speak about the politicization of science and I, yes, that happens. People 
somehow feel they can cherry-pick emergent tr scientific truths to resonate with their philosophies and reject those that don't. My issue here is I'm not going to debate those people or argue with them in a venue. I'm going to instead offer the public this product called Cosmos that alerts you how science works and what it means to express a scientific truth. I claim that all those who think they can cherry-pick science simply don't understand how science works. That's what I claim. And if they did, they'd be less prone to just assert that uh, somehow scientists are clueless or... Uh, by the way, when we're clueless, we will tell you we're clueless. <laughs> there are plenty of cases where that's true. I don't know what dark matter is or dark energy. We're clueless. All right. I don't know how we went from inorganic molecules to self-replicating life. Uh, yeah, I'll tell you that. But when we do know something, there are reasons why we know it. And if you don't understand that, you deny it only at your peril, especially when the result affects, uh, may affect the stability of our future economy or nation. So I guess this does create a tension for you, though, because in the first episode of Cosmos, you tell the story of Giordano Bruno, who was persecuted by the Inquisition for some of his inquiries. Uh, and this raises the whole host of areas in which science runs into people's presuppositions, ideologies or worldviews. So, I mean, will you really be able to avoid engaging in some of the battle over what's true? I mean, Sagan engaged in the battle. Sagan uh, was... He resonated in part because of his stands on political issues like arms control, nuclear winter, and the Star Wars program. Okay, so several things. So there's a lot in what you just commented. So in our first episode where we highlight the plight of Giordano Bruno, uh, some people view that episode as being, uh, I read just in the, my Twitter stream every now and then, someone says, well, that was anti-religion. And uh, the cosmos will not is not anti anything. Cosmos is here is science. Here are the struggles that scientists have gone through to bring emergent truths to their cultures in which they were embedded. And so there it is. Now, if you want to say that's political, well, go ahead. But I don't. I'm telling you, this is what happened. Okay. And so now. Meanwhile, Giordano Bruno himself was a deeply religious person. In fact, you could argue he was more religious than the people prosecuting him because his premise was that if Copernicus is right and the sun is just another star like the stars in the night sky, that means the stars in the night sky might have planets because our sun has planets. And if they might have planets, then they might have earths. They have earths and they might have life. And so the God he was worshiping, the God Bruno was worshiping, would be a God of all the over all the life in the universe, a bigger God than the one that puts Earth in the center and focuses only on the affairs of humans. So it was a battle of religious ideologies, one of which would come closer to the expressed scientific truth than the other. So that's all. The real culprit here is not whether it's religion or the real culprit is dogma. And it would be true in any form. It could be cultural dogma, business dogma. Uh, yes, religious dogma, but also anytime you have a doctrine where that is the truth that you assert and that, that what you call the truth is unassailable, you've got dogma on your hands. And so cosmos is 
it's an offering of science and a reminder that dogma does not advance science. It actually regresses it. That's something to know. Now, with regard to, to Carl, Carl Sagan would debate people on all manner of issues, and I don't, I don't have the time or the energy or the interest in doing so. As an educator, I'd rather just get people thinking straight in the first place, so I don't have to then debate them later on. Um, but Carl spoke up on other matters, other political issues like, like uh, nuclear winter and things. By the way, the people ask, well, where is today's citizen scientist? as there were yesterday. And the fact is, in, co in the Cold War, the foundation of Cold War might was derived from nuclear arsenals. And nuclear arsenals are based on atomic weapons, and atomic weapons are the brainchilds of physicists. So if you were a peace-loving physicist, you, you carried a certain level of accountability for the weapons arsenals that were holding the world hostage. And so you would not be surprised that the most outspoken scientist of the day would then be the physicists. Today, the threats to the world are basically not nuclear. They are, they relate to, you know, there's threats to your privacy, to there's bio threats, there's uh, chemical threats, there's, there's um, hacking threats. There's um, wars are fought with drones and with with a precision weaponry. None of that comes directly out of the physicist shop. The people who are there, those are engineers and they're they're biologists, chemists. So, are you going to turn to the physicist to be the peace loving person speaking out against drones, or or do you, are you going to get the aerospace engineers who would who become peace-loving to do that. So this is my point. Carl Sagan and others would be the natural people in a time of a war where the weapons were invented by our scientific brethren. Otherwise, and plus, plus the concept of war is bad was primarily a, a Vietnam concept. In the Second World War, People fighting Hitler were not saying war is bad. They were saying Hitler is bad, and we need to fight a war to, to get rid of him. So I'm not going to judge the path of history in this way. I'm just going to offer science and tell people how powerful this knowledge is and how responsible one needs to be going forward, because I think what we all want is to preserve our species and to preserve our culture and civilization in ways that can be enjoyed for generations to come. Do you feel then that part of this message in terms of preserving, and I mean, part of the original cosmos was about how precious the earth is and how uh, we can threaten it. In this case, we can threaten it with nuclear weapons. I mean, do you think part of the message now has to be we can threaten it because we can change its temperature in a way that's going to have all kinds yeah, well, of terrible... Uh, well, yeah. that's correct. We, we can, there are many ways we can threaten... Uh, we can say, well, let's save Earth. No, we'd be saving ourselves. Earth will be here long after we're extinct, uh, in, in all cases. So, uh, so the messaging is: you are equipped and empowered with this cosmic perspective, achieved by the methods and tools of science applied to the universe. And are you going to be a good shepherd or a bad shepherd? Are you going to use your wisdom to protect civilization? Or will you go at it in a short-sighted enough way to either destroy it or be complicit in its destruction? This, if you can't 
bring your scientific knowledge to bear on those kinds of decisions, then why even waste your time? Science, what distinguishes cosmos from all other documentaries that I've seen, not only in its, in its original incarnation, but for the new one, is we're not only telling you about science and what it has come to teach us, but we tell you about why science matters. And that's what distinguishes Cosmos from other documentaries that may just rip pages from a, from a textbook and put it in a curriculum for you to learn. So in the original Cosmos, Sagan actually said, I think it was in that very, that opening on the Monterey Cliffs that we already mentioned, he said, we're away for the Cosmos to know itself. But it seems to me, I don't know that we know the answer uh, why we are away for the cosmos to know itself. And recently we had on the show a mathematician from Berkeley named Edward Frankel who posited in the New York Times that maybe we're living in a simulation because math works so well to describe everything, letting us know the cosmos. So do we have any answer to that question? Why can we use math and it actually works? Yeah, math is a stunning invention of the human mind that captures the language of the universe. So people like to think philosophically about that, and I do too, but usually over a beer. But if I'm not drinking a beer, I say to myself, uh, we studied the universe and we decoded the language that the universe speaks in, and that language is math. Now, if you studied carefully Chinese people, right, and you don't know any Chinese, but you have pictures of them, and you watch them interact, and you record the sounds that come out of their mouths, and what they do, and you associate actions with sounds and gestures, you can figure out what that language is, eventually. This is not, not overnight, but you can figure it out. And then you can say, I'm now going to go to China and talk to Chinese people, because I got this. Well, that's really all we did with the universe, except it took centuries to figure out the language of the universe. And it's not only the, the good thing about the language of the universe is you can learn it in one place and apply it somewhere else, right? So you can learn Mandarin in Beijing and go somewhere else in China and speak Mandarin and they'll understand you there. That's, I don't see that as fundamentally different from what we did with the universe. Now, there are branches of math that you can just invent that have no known correspondence to what's going on in the actual universe and that's fine. In the past, there have been just such branches invented that we would later show had relevance, like non-Euclidean geometry, the geometry of space where the space is not flat. It's curved and, and parallel lines meet and meet rather than don't meet. And, and weird things go on compared to the rules you learned in geometry class. Well, that was discovered mathematically before it had any, any real application to the world. And so that's interesting too, that there can be math we invent and later on see how it fits. But uh, otherwise, there's separate arguments, I think, for whether why the universe is somebody's computer simulation, someone's master's thesis in a higher dimension, <laughs> or in a zoo of universes that are, are just somebody's uh, experimental laboratory. Gotcha. Well, you know, I, I think that just remains sort of one of the fascinating goosebumpy questions here that, I mean, you know, of course, we don't have all the answers. And I guess that's sort of one of them. Let me just ask you one more question. So what, you know, you've established the distribution of, of the new cosmos is massive. 
uh, and you've definitely established uh, the voice of it and, and what it hopes to achieve. What what counts as a win? You know, what will make it everything that you wanted it to be? Uh, the fact that it aired at all. That's the win. Really. The fact that it aired in prime time on a major network on a Sunday night when everybody's home. The fact that it's going to 181 countries and 45 languages. The fact that it's 13 of these episodes. That's the win. What happens, you know, after this, uh, you know, there'll be people who will, will be looking at the ratings. I don't know what's how the ratings came out. It was up against... Uh, a, a fresh uh, episode of The Walking Dead, all right? And there's a lot of overlap in the communities between those two. I, I even had to tweet uh, just yesterday. I tweeted, Geek Dilemma, that was the title of the tweet. And I, I, I said, Cosmos airs at the same time as The Walking Dead. And I said, I, I, I may be biased, but I'm going to be watching Cosmos and DVRing the zombies. <laughs> That's what I said. <laughs> so I don't know how many people watched it, but it's out there. And media was talking about it. And I'd like to think that it will help shape the vocabulary going forward of citizenry and the electorate and kids and teachers and the other drivers of social and cultural mores. If you now know that science matters, it's not something to step around or dig a hole under or step over, that you're a participant in this epic adventure, then it's, I think it's succeeded. And if people talking about it at the water cooler the next morning, that's even better. But I will not say, well, if it doesn't hit these numbers, it's failed. I, I think it's a beautiful product. And I say that even if I were not a part of it, uh, the extraordinary investment of time and energy with Andrean and Steve Soder, the writers, and, and, and the visual effects people. In Cosmos, it's, there are things that happen just smoothly that if you stop and pause for a moment, they're just extraordinary, right? I'm standing by a lake, and then this this creature walks out of the lake that's been extinct for, you know, for for hundreds of millions of years. And I just say, here's the first vertebrate to come out of the ocean onto land. And it just happens as I walk by it. The, the fluidity of extraordinary visual phenomenon is itself extraordinary. And I think... One of its successes could be just the ease with which it is rope, it is reeling you in to learning the methods and tools of science. Well, it is a spectacular thing to watch, and congratulations on this happening, and it's been really great to talk to you, Dr. Tyson. Thank you very much. One of my favorite parts of that interview is when Dr. Tyson actually made the point that although scientists might be political. The science itself is not. And I think that's something that we forget time and time again. Yeah, I, I, I'm skeptical, though, that you can really protect it in the way that one wants to. I mean, you know, it's wonderful to try to educate everybody and to stay away to some extent from the things that are hot button issues. But you can't you can't stay away fully. And what we've seen is that sort of politicization kind of gets everything in its maw. And when Cosmos, you know, the, the original Cosmos, 
Carl Sagan has plenty of stuff about evolution in there. And, you know, hearing Dr. Tyson talk, I, you know, I think that we're going to be seeing that again. He made some references to evolution content. I mean, the creationists, they're gonna, they're gonna reject it. They're going to tweet about it and argue about it and denounce it. It's gonna happen. And insofar as it's high profile, it's gonna happen more. So in some sense, you cannot fully avoid, uh, that happening to scientific content, even if you want to. Yeah, no, I, I mean, I'm sure that the content itself will be, you know, questioned by, you know, by humans, opinionated people and, and so forth. But the fact is, is that it's going to the facts are going to outlive all of us and, and all of our political climates. And that's what makes it exciting and also what makes it so obvious in a, in a show like Cosmos, where you really are trying to talk about science and it's in its huge breadth you know it's not just one particular subtopic and i think it's the fact that we are actually considering our own place in this massive set of multiverses i mean forget universe that's just you know it, it brings this kind of awe of science back to the forefront mm -hmm. and it's true uh, it, compared with that vision that sublime vision and if you watch the first episode of cosmos there's a couple of moments when it like hits you in the gut Right. Compared with that, the fights that we have over politicization of science are are petty and fleeting and actually just kind of lame. <laughs> no, I mean, yeah. they're not going to last the test of time, but they are they are omnipresent. And, you know, it wasn't just our interview, every not every interview, but many interviews I've seen with Dr. Tyson. People are trying to get him to talk about the political issues of the day. So, you know, that's kind of a that's kind of a line that he has to walk. Yeah, but I think he's a smart he's a smart man for yeah. pointing out that, you know, the facts speak for themselves. They they in the long term, I think that they do that they do. In the short term, boy, it's messy. Okay, well, we'll leave it at that. So that's it for another episode, and I want to thank you for joining us for this installment of Inquiring Minds. To find us online, visit climatedesk.org. You can also find us on Twitter at Inquiring Show and on Facebook at slash inquiring minds podcast. And don't forget that today's show was sponsored by Credo Mobile, the phone company that shares your progressive values. When science is under attack, Credo fights back. Credo takes action around the country to promote science education and oppose climate change deniers. Can your phone company say that? You can learn more about Credo at www.credomobile.com or for a special offer of $50 off any phone for Inquiring Minds listeners, go to credomobile.com forward slash inquiring minds. Inquiring Minds is produced by Adam Isaac in cooperation with Climate Desk, a journalistic collaboration that includes The Atlantic, the Center for Investigative Reporting, The Guardian, Grist, The Huffington Post, Mother Jones, Slate, and Wired, and our music is provided by the award-winning producer, Rian Sheehan. And we're your hosts. I'm Chris Mooney. And I'm Indre Viscontis. At Amica Insurance... We know it's more than just a car. It's the two-door coupe that was there for your first drive. The hatchback that took you cross-country and back. And the minivan that tackles the weekly carpool. For the cars you couldn't live without, trust Amica Auto Insurance. Amica. Empathy is our best policy.